Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is my bud, Daryl Morey. He is a legendary figure in the world of basketball, president of the Philadelphia 76ers, storied, really important franchise. Daryl is, you know, in our country, we don't, and, and I'm, I guess I'm thinking about this because of um, the monarchy, but we don't have, we don't knight people in our country. But if, if we did, in, in my worldview, Daryl's been knighted because he was profiled by Michael Lewis in a book called The Undoing Project, which is like uh, the American version of being knighted is being uh, written about by Michael Lewis, uh, I think. And I love that book. Did you love the book, even the parts not about you? Wonderful. Yeah, obviously seminal on uh, Tversky and Kahneman and learning about the early origins of how people make terrible decisions and how to avoid it. Well, yeah, Daryl, this is what I mean, I, I, I want to talk to you about why I'm so, so keen to talk to you is because you are, a, a, it seems to me, a, a person who's connected to your emotions. You love art, you love music, you are a, a sports fan, and yet you've trained yourself to be a dispassionate decision maker and decision making, our emotions screw up our decision making so often and so i'm fascinated by that and i want to i want to get there uh be because you're one of the people who brought a quantitative approach to a professional basketball that, that wasn't there before uh right a sabermetrics inspired approach if i can use the old terminology but i where i want to start if I, I can is when you were a kid growing up in, in wisconsin what 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 is it about basketball that captured your imagination why was basketball a thing that you know, yeah. What what is it about the game? Because I, I I share an obsession with it. So I'm, t- tell me. I'm glad you asked again. No one's no one's ever actually asked me that, which I so I love. Um, so I actually grew up more in Ohio. So I moved to Ohio when I was six from Wisconsin. So my kindergarten through senior year of high school was in Ohio, and my love of basketball I think was you know like most great things in life, uh, a big part of it was serendipity and that. I uh, happened to be neighbors with one of the top uh, players in the area, um, which isn't saying much. I was in rural uh, Ohio, sort of between or near Akron and Cleveland. Um, my being from near Akron has never helped me recruit one of the best players of all time, but which yeah. I'm still bitter about. But I happened to be so we had a we had a basketball hoop uh, on my driveway. Uh, right in front of my pond, and my neighbor was one of the top players, and we had, you know, one of the better hoops to play at in the neighborhood. And so I would be out there playing all day, and then people would come over to my place, and then my neighbor, who was way better than me, would just just, and he was also three years older than me, would destroy me every day, and I I just became obsessed with beating him someday. That's awesome. Uh, and yeah. so. If you want to get better, I mean, not that people, if you want to get better at basketball, play someone older than you who's really good. Uh, because I think to get better at anything, you have to really have two two things. You have to, one, recognize someone's better, uh, and then, two, have a desire to close that gap. And you'd be surprised at how even in NBA players, those two things don't, don't exist. They either are often delusional and don't know they're not as good as, you know, the top players – or they don't have the daily habits that will allow them to improve and and close that gap. So, love the game. I you know I happen to be pretty good at it. I was sort of a decent high school player, uh, not good enough to play at Northwestern, unfortunately. But um, you know, love playing. Famously, Stats Inc. I was like the the best player in that league, which isn't saying much because I was a bunch of nerds playing. So right, but and and you were. Uh, when you were a kid, were you tall? You're tall now, but were you tall when that kid was older than you? Was he also bigger than you? Bigger, uh, t- not taller forever, but bigger, stronger. Uh, I was very thin. Uh, you know, we both have sons that mean a lot to us, Brian. I know uh, mine looks like my son is 20 now, looks exactly like me, like super rail thin. I, I wish I still was rail thin, but you know, life life happens. Um, so actually, so I got actually better at basketball in college because I went from six, four, one sixty five, which sounds impossible, but it's, it's possible to, uh, you know, six, four, two ten, And that's a much, a much better weight to play basketball at. Yeah. I never (laughs) got, I mean, I'm six feet though. I was once listed in a, I was once listed in a, 
my high school team got to the state championship, like the quarters, I was the worst guy, second worst guy on the team, but we did, I was, we got to the quarters of the states in our division, but that was the only game we ever had. They made a paper program and they listed me at like six, three, which was hilarious <laughs> because I was never getting in the game. I wasn't going to get in the game. And I was, I, but I had the thing. I saved it for years because it was so funny, but like you, I got much better because I grew not, I never got tall, you know, um, but by the end of college, I was like very tough in intramurals and stuff. I know you want to, like, I was very tough by the end of college. And I remember a guy on the team, like we were playing pickup really late at night, like midnight. And I, I just remember this one guy looking at me cause I, I finally, again, I was never very good at basketball, but it's funny what happens when you go, I had understanding of the game that was so different by then. And I remember once like just get going down the middle and this guy going like, yeah, it's weird. Some people, the way this guy was on the team was like, you're now like really good enough, but it happened when it's too late. And right. that's what happened. I, I, under, I, I relate to that. You know? This is going to be the most sad basketball podcast ever where we both talk about our intramural titles. And, <laughs> and yes, so, well, and, it really uh, mattered. The, the one that mattered most to me was we, myself and two friends, we won the three on three title beating players who are on the Northwestern basketball team. So who, you know, in my memory, were playing hard, but I'm guessing they probably mailed it in a little, probably. So. Oh, God. I'm, all right. This will be the last thing I say because you'll just laugh at this. My memory of this, uh, which is not, a, this is not a glorious story. I was so hopped up on the whole intramurals of it all. And I cared so much like an imbecile that um, we were playing the football fraternity in basketball. And I decided to stand in and challenge uh, the quarterback who came in elbow raised and split my entire forehead like I had to go right from there to the hospital and just get all all the stitches because I thought it mattered that I was tough enough to stand <laughs> in and take the fucking charge like an idiot. But this is what I want to ask you about basketball. So, okay, that was the personal like one-on-one -on -one thing. But it strikes me that like other than soccer, basketball is the most improvisational sport and the most poetic sport in certain ways. I mean, baseball's poetic in that you have enough time to write about it, but it's movements or not. Mm -hmm. But basketball is this the closest thing to jazz and people say that, but the more you know about basketball, like the more that that is, these things happen, you have a set play much like um, the chords that might be in the background, but then there's this improvisational top note that always exists. And so I'm, I'm wondering how, what you saw in that that made you think there's a quantitative overlay or, or something. Just talk about that a bit. Yeah, I love the jazz metaphor in that, um, it is a sport that an individual can just take over, right? Like, which is rare for a team sport. I, I'd say I can't even honestly, maybe a pitcher in baseball, uh, but you know, soccer's got 22 people on the field. Football, our American football is 22 people on the field. It's very, the quarterback might be close to it, but it's very hard. But at any point, uh, a player could take over and go on, you know, a, uh, amazing uh amazing riff that everyone focuses on them so it's it's a little bit of like a individual sport masquerading as a team sport but it's only done best when you treat it like a team sport so it's it's pretty interesting i also love and i, I got very lucky that um i was big I, I my first job was in baseball working on data in baseball with bill james at stats inc and myself and another person there started working on basketball because you know baseball was pretty well developed by the time I was working in it in right. the early nineties. Although no one was listening, a lot of the data foundations were being laid at that time. So I, obviously I was young and I was looking for places where the sport I loved could potentially uh, use, use data. There wasn't a lot of good data. And what I've, again, serendipity, what I've been very fortunate is the game. I love basketball I think is honestly the perfect sport to analyze with data and that it will never be completely able to be analyzed by data. Uh, baseball is pretty darn close. You might be able to have a robot run a baseball team. No offense to Andrew Friedman and some of my good friends in baseball, but basketball will never be that because if you just think of something like just one jump shot, 
going in? Is it because that guy trained his jump shot? Is it because the other guy made him open? Is it because the defense was bad? Is it because the the moment, you know, there's there's a, a huge pressure of the moment that impacted the player? There's so many that goes into just one jump shot that data could not analyze. The idea that you could analyze the whole sport using data is sort of ridiculous. But it turns out because there's enough possessions, because there's you know, 90, 90 to 100 possessions in a game, and you go back and forth and you get two points, one point, three points, you get this fidelity of outcomes. You can tease out a lot of stuff and data will help you analyze the game, but you always have to remember it's never going to be the answer, and that's what I love. It'll always be a nice mix of art and science where I think, you know, things are the most interesting. Where you can apply... All this, you mean you like the the idea that it is imper that that it's closer to poker than chess, that it's an imperfect, hundred percent uh, imperfect information for you makes it continue to be animating, like it continue to be engaging because it's not fully solvable. A hundred percent, yeah, and and we're still learning. Uh, you know, I actually feel bad for the folks I know in baseball. They'll they'll work now early on they were finding like things that could change two wins three wins 162 games they're down to like one third of a win on 162 games based on you know how much the catcher you know shifts his mitt by a few inches and stuff like it's they're down to that kind of stuff there's still still fairly material innovations that are coming in basketball i think may still come just based on you can completely change how you play um baseball with the shift is really interesting to me like i love the shift it was interesting it created all these strategic dynamics and then they changed the rules i think there's a there's still areas of basketball where teams could change how they play in pretty significant ways and if those come i worry the league office would be like nah we we don't like we don't like we just change the rules so you can't do it so i, I mean i've gone back and forth it's in, right a fascinating question like even though the shift is frustrating at times. And by the way, I remember when they used to do that against Dave Kingman, like they, people did it 40 years ago, but they would only do it for one batter in certain circumstances. And it was novel and you never knew if it was going to work. But as a fan, I just say to myself, isn't the way to resolve this to have the baseball players relearn how to hit the opposite field? Like why right. isn't that the, why isn't that the, uh, uh, uh approach to it you know um as the nba eventually figured out with zone defenses right which was well no let's let a team do that but let's game let's see if you can game against it like why do you think the institutions because you're in them why do you think the institutions uh, uh don't throw it back on the on the players in that in that way well that that's an easy one um that's why i think probably the worst group of people to ask for rule changes are the 30 people in my job because we've we've won the power struggle to get to the top of our you know decision making of the industry and so a lot of a lot, a lot of our our um, our future salaries winning everything is based on our ability to win the game that's being played right now Whereas when fundamental changes come, and that obviously dealt with this when I was first coming into the league, the the antibodies and, and white blood cells of the league were trying to reject anyone with a, a baseball type or data background because it's absolutely going to change the power structure of the league. So generally, any anyone anyone in power, and hopefully I'll, I can avoid this, is going to you know vote against things that might shift the power structure. I mean that's just the fundamentals. So, uh, and you know, again, that's why basketball is interesting. Uh, what I love is when you're in industries where there isn't a score, right? These sort of systemic power things last even longer. Whereas at least with basketball, I can come in, you know, with some other really, really smart people who are running teams right now and say, Hey, let's play a different way. We win 10 more games than we should. Everyone says, Oh my goodness, I need to be doing that. But if you're in like these industries where you can't demonstrate your value, you know, you're going to get rejected for a long time before you make it in. But thinking about that base, the baseball change against the shift and this idea that changes have to come when they come like 
the fear of losing fans for even a second is so great in terms of how it uh, affects stuff. Um, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, the NBA putting the midseason tournament in. And, and what I wonder is, like, when I think of this baseball decision, like, just paralleling it just to educate us because you're in these rooms. Mm -hmm. What's the counter argument to saying, well, let's say we're going to let teams do the shift because it's what it's what um, there's never been this idea that you have to codify where people stand on the baseball field. And, And why wouldn't we just say, hey, players train and learn how to hit to the opposite way? I mean, what's that kind of conversation? I first start with like at the high level, NBA has done the best and Commissioner Silver at adopting new rules and yes. things like that to keep the game interesting. So I, I love that I'm in the NBA. I often wish things would change quicker, but baseball's obviously had a history of being very slow, uh, slow to change. Uh, I actually made fun of my baseball friends because I think it was two years ago, maybe, where they were like had a whole committee to adopt all these possible changes, pitch clock. I mean, there was like 50 things on the table and they only came out with, we'll make intentional walks quicker. Literally like that was the only change of the 50 they considered. I mean, it might've been one other, I forgot, but so the shift, if I, so I like to make steel man arguments, you know, have you heard of that before? So obviously the opposite of a straw man. Exactly. Cause when people argue, you know, in bad faith, they'll, they'll make a bad version of the other side's argument. The only steel man argument I can make for the MLB for doing the shift is they're heading off even more radical things, such as that you there's actually no rule that a fielder can't stand in the way of a pitcher as the ball comes to the plate. So like one crazy radical thing, I'm sure a team will try if they were bad enough, if they're say a team that, you know, you know, and the Rays have been an innovator for a long time because they don't have a lot of fans. They don't have the money. Like they've just been an amazing team. They're not. They're not. Uh, you know, they're not the Yankees. They can't. They can experiment more. Put put a player between the pitcher and home plate, and have it time that as the pitch is thrown and they're tall enough to block the plate, they fall to the ground. <laughs> that'll minimize the amount of time yeah, the batter can right. see the 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 big ball. It'd be a major thing. No one. No one tries it because they'd probably change the rule that evening. You know, Rob Manfred would be like, aha, great one, guys. We've now changed the rule for tomorrow <laughs> that you can't do that. So, like, maybe they're trying to head off even more crazy, like, radical stuff they think, to your point, might hurt the game or something like that. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, that that's that's a good steel man um, argument. And baseball's done all sorts of wacky things like that, obviously, throughout time. Like, people will, in moments, try things like like that to make certain or, or save of- them i love the shift because it, to your point it creates this competitive dynamic to your point team they added they went they went away from the horrible man-to-man nba rules that you and i lived through in the 90s which were just nonsensical no one could understand them just they're like offsides in soccer completely completely stupid rule and, and essentially said you can do whatever you want but we'll make it a simple rule you can't stand for three seconds on defense and yeah, for a while that actually shifted some part of the defense until this is why you this is what you want to have happen. Teams were like, okay, set defense is harder to go against. Now we're going to get back out in transition, and it really helped the game because it brought back the '80s up tempo play. And now, now you get I think the game's in one of the best places it's ever been. Up tempo play, a lot of great players, creative play, different defenses that are fun to watch. Nobody and people are playing differently. Oh yeah, I think the game's in pretty great shape too. I mean, uh, though I, I I will ask you. I have this question to ask you later. I agree with you that the the play on the floor, the game play on the floor is 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 great most of the time. I do. I have a couple of questions though. Just how you think about certain how you think about certain mm-hmm. questions. One is. You know, how, you know, you said you're among those 30 people in these jobs who are judged in this way, and that's true, and you have to get get the wins. But I've been thinking a lot about Live Golf, and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, if Live Golf weren't run by the Saudis, I would completely be on the player's side who, who want to leave, because I'm always on the, as, a, as, a, uh, as an independent contractor in my business, I'm always on the side of freedom for those kinds of people, right? 
But as a as a as a fan, I'm I wonder like the power structure in the NBA feels like it has shifted so heavily toward 20 superstar players basically being mini GMs. And um and I wonder how the dynamic of that, which you've lived through the beginning, you lived through this. How does it affect how you think about the game and also how you think about your job? Because it's no longer about you by fiat making a series of decisions about how you want to put your team together, right? It, mm -hmm. It's not because you also have to grapple with the interpersonal stuff of players who might be making similar moves below you and who now have been granted the power to do so or have grabbed the power to do so. Yeah, to your point, I've lived through this whole dynamic fact, you know, leaned through it and you leaned into it and was something that we thought was an edge for us, which is being like very tight partners with our top players. And I think if you take a step back, it, everything starts with the structure of the sport. The reason this is the case is because basketball is super unique. There's only 10 players on the floor at a time. Uh, and every player is playing both sides of the ball. That and it turns out that 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 yields uh, a huge amount of value going to a very small number of players, like these super unique unicorn players, like uh, a Joel Embiid or a James Harden, become uh, you know massively valuable. I mean, to the point where you know at times in history, the best players of all time on 82 games were worth 25, 30 wins, which is like unheard of even, you know, the best player in baseball history, you know, on enhanced substances was maybe worth 15 wins out of 162. So, I mean, how many wins is Otani? He's the best player maybe who ever lived. I mean, he can't make a team win. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't matter. I mean, that's the thing. Right? If, you, if you had Otani in the NBA, you're in the playoffs, if not home court. Right. Uh, if you have the best player in the game, like it just, you know, it's, and they have it's like really... two of the, I mean, the angel, it's a fascinating, the angels have, it must be very dispiriting for the guys in your job because they have two of the best 10 players in baseball. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And I, I actually love that about baseball. I love that you can do your job on the three to 25 players and still be a very good team. Like you just, just impossible in the NBA. If your top two aren't uniquely in the top 10 to 20 players in the league, you may as well, you know, look, you may as well rebuild. You're not winning that year. It's just not, it's just not happening. And it's, and it's, it's, and the reason for that is, as you know, I like that we're talking baseball. You seem like a fan of both sports. Um, you know, basically think the easiest way to think about it for me is that, you know, let's take Barry Bonds, who is the best hitter of all time at, at his peak, I believe. Um, you know, I he agree. goes up to, he goes up to bat you know, gets a walk or gets a double or whatever he gets in the NBA. Now he has to wait eight more times to come to bat. But, but in our sport, if, you know, Joel Embiid gets the ball and scores, right. You know, he can basically say like, well, I'm still the best player. So I'm going to go up to bat again. So if Joel Embiid was in baseball, he would get to bat over and over and over. And it's actually gotten even more dramatic. With a lot of the top players, the literally the only way to guard them is to switch because the pick and roll creates such an advantage. So that's why you'll see a lot of pick and rolls being switched at a higher and higher rate, especially as you get into the playoffs. So, so if you think about it, not only if basket if baseball is like basketball, could Barry Bonds go to bat every time and be the guy batting every single time? He also, by manipulating switches, will be able to pick the pitcher he's going to face. So he's right. like, I don't want to face Jacob Degrom. I'm going to face, you know, the fifth, their fifth starter. Well, well this <laughs> so. all speaks to why the this all speaks to why basketball player A is so important and so much more than baseball player A. But it, it so it goes back to this question I was asking about. Yeah. How you manage? So yeah, one way I guess is to make friends with them or include them in the process. But how do you feel? Basically, it it doesn't it change what the hasn't the job because of the the fact that players the best player in each franchise is his own mini gm uh and might decide to trade himself doesn't that make your job more complicated it definitely makes it more complicated but for me it sort of just is i'm in the fishbowl and you know i'm like drinking the water and i don't even know it's water so like the reality is the structure of the sport says that there's are there are going to be these really really important players um and so, I, again, I don't think of them 
I don't think of those players as many GMs, although I can understand the fan perception, especially given a lot of the very public things that have that have gone on over the years. I think about it as this way. So it used to be that these, the metaphor, I like to use jazz earlier, but the metaphor for most coaches and managers, if you go through most of the history of most of these top sports, was a very militaristic approach, which is the, yes. the generals at the top, general, general create plan, you know, people execute plan, we win, right? That is their mental model of the sport. And that, that, can still work in certain sports, although I think it's suboptimal maybe to all sports. But it really, really doesn't work when you have players who uh, are such, you know, such outsized value relative to anyone in the organization. Like, you know, the top few players in, on an NBA team that have a chance to win the title are an order of magnitude more valuable than anyone else uh, in the organization, including myself the owner, the head coach, any, it doesn't matter. Like they are that valuable. So what it takes is like you have to come into it, not with a top down militaristic approach, uh, but a consultative approach, right? Which is like, we're all, we're all in this canoe rowing together towards the NBA championship. We're all working together towards it. I have some things that I might be better at then, which is, you know, using data and maybe, yeah, you, know, you know, working on your complementary skill sets for the players around you. And I have time to research the thousands of players that are in the world that might fit you best. It probably makes sense for you to outsource that decision to someone who's doing all that work and a lot of the background of that. I'm going to leave running pick and rolls to you, but let's work together on this. We're all trying to do the same thing and win. So that's a different approach than like, I've been the guy who understands how to do this basketball thing. I am 50. You are 23 and you are just learning this thing. So right. you should just listen to me, sir. And, and, you know, if it doesn't work, then I will tell you what will work and just do it. That's a very, it's a very different approach. And, and we, we took that approach early with the Rockets, obviously, you know, had, I think the second most wins and, most advances in the blast and win the whole thing, which is frustrating. Someday, hopefully that happens, but we were very successful, but we leaned into that, which is like, how do we, how do we do this in a collaborative way? To your point, initially it doesn't always work. Like you have to have the right partner. You don't always have the right partner, but we also don't always have the best players. So it just becomes another thing. Well, yeah. And how much does the, does the, does the buy-in? Cause I think one thing that as a fan, I think some of us believe is that in basketball, vibe matters some, meaning how a player feels on the court with the people that he's with. It seems to have some, you know, Kareem had a resurgence when Magic was there, not just because of Magic's basket. This is the fan perception. Not mm -hmm. just because of Magic's skill set, but because of Magic's attitude, which was part of his skill set, right? Right. But it brought something out in Kareem that led to this, made them better than to sort of who they were in, in individually. And so is that also part of it? Are you thinking about that in basketball in a way that's different than the other sports? And is that part of why you can you want to have player buy-in? Yeah, I, th I think vibe matters hugely. And you're right. There's no better way to get vibe than to have everyone get in a room and say like, hey, we want, you know, George Niang or PJ Tucker or, you know, D'Anthony Melton on our team. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I love that guy. I feel good or mantras. Montrez Harrow, who, who, uh, who we're signing uh, shortly here. So, like, if everyone again, not everyone's always going to be on board, but if they, the more someone feels a part of a decision, I'm sure you have. I don't want to compare it because I yes. don't understand your. But I'm sure when you have an actor make a suggestion and you actually think it's one that's good and they feel bought in, it, it like resonates. Sometimes you have to do what I do, which is like when they make a suggestion, you you're pretty sure isn't a good one. You have to, in an artful way explain to them why you think this other choice is better right like it's very beyond that if we're going to bring a big piece in on billions of ca of talent who's going to play a lot of scenes with our key actors we're going to go present it we're we're it's not like you're giving veto power but you're going here's an idea do you love this idea would you think it would be great to play scenes with this person and the actor on so we'll say, yeah, oh, yeah. In fact, I've, I've wanted to work with that. It's like, great. 
because that'll make everybody's day better than it's just, hey, guess what? We, we've written 20 scenes for you to play with this person who you don't think is going to bring something good out in you. So right. totally you, that makes sense. And if you have a hit show, you're probably more careful like you do. You're more careful who you bring in. That's very similar. If we have a team that has a chance to win the championship like we do, we're very more careful with the players we win. Whereas if you're in a rebuild state, you're you're just like you're, you're bringing in guest stars. You're not really like yes. going to be consulting a lot of people. You're like, well, hey, we're just trying to like turn this thing around. Like I'm not going to worry too much about what everyone thinks. I'm just going to take risks and bets. But when we when you're us and, and we're we have a very good chance to win it next year, I really wouldn't say any team in the league is better than us. I think I would respect them and say a few probably. You know, Vegas would say they have a better chance, but we're in their range. Yeah, we're not just bringing in random people. This is something where you can actually mess it up. You can mess up the vibe, to use your word. And so you have to be very careful. And actually, Coach Rivers does a really good job. And I would say he has a lot of strengths. But one of his strengths is like getting – we have a lot of good players this year, and it's going to be challenging for him to mix and match. But I wouldn't give it to anyone else. He's He does a good job of like – keeping everyone focused on the goal as a cohesive unit, which is not easy in today's NBA. Daryl, what do you do to avoid some of the cognitive biases that Tversky and Kahneman, you know, discovered to avoid the heuristics that are the negative ones. As an example, you've made this bet on James Harden a few times. Nobody knows if you're right or wrong except you, and he's, there's no doubt from a talent perspective, one of the most talented guys ever to play in the game. And, but how do you avoid, because uh, most of us fall into this, especially most people who've had success, can fall into this thing of, of wanting to prove to themselves and others that they were right. So, right? I mean, you see your face yeah. is like, yeah. So, how, but, but in your job, it seems to me you'd have to rigorously back test and then also mm-hmm. like rigorously gut check yourself when you make a decision like, okay, we're going to let Simmons go. We're going to bring Harden in. I'm going to basically put the team in. Yes, you have Joel, you have all these amazing players, but essentially, you know, James is going to be this big piece. How do you test yourself that it's not? fuck, I, I decided a long time ago that James might take it and I'm riding that. Like, how does that emotion, yeah, no, how do you I do love, that emotionally? Yeah. I love that question. You know, as you know, my wife would laugh as it, laugh at it. Cause I'm so, when it, I'm so patchy, I'm so passionate at things, but I'm so dispassionate when it comes to decision-making, I would say, you know, people have, I love it. I've gotten aware of these cognitive biases and there's like, 30 of them, but honestly, there's really three that I think really trip people up. And one of them is the one you mentioned, but the three that really trip people up are confirmation bias, which I think we live through in politics and just life now. Like it just, when you look for it, it's just everywhere and permeates everything. And people are actually not good at avoiding it, even when they know about it. Uh, There's anchoring, which is another one that is very, very hard to avoid, which, you know, I think people understand that one if someone just like if you're trying to make a group decision and anyone says a number it will mess up it'll mess it up you have to do these number predictions in private and we have to do them all the time and the last one's endowment effect which is if you own something you just treat it differently you just you have a higher value on it if you well if you feel no one owns anything really but like if it's in like you know if it's on your team or it's something in your house you you have a higher value on it than almost for sure it is like and so those three. And then to get to your specific question, because I think with James Harden, I think what you're getting at is that, you know, there could be this confirmation bias of like, let's just, let's just make this thing work. Right. You uh, know, well, like, a few different of those biases you just said, <laughs> the home with the last yeah. one too, right. Where it's, yes, yes. Where you've invested so much of yourself into this idea over a number of years and in different places. Yeah. How do you just rigorously and check? That, and that should all be a sunk like that should not factor in at all right you know for sure so i can just say like look we had a big decision to make last year you know to your to your point you know we knew we weren't good enough to win the title with the team we had most of the year but we also knew we had to get one trade right Uh, and it was what how does that look and 
what mattered was like we had to figure out what what is the window which we're trying to win uh we felt like our window was a little bit shorter than might maybe perceived um you know given given some of the aging curves, injury curves, things like that with our, with our other top players. So if you look at it as a shorter, shorter window, we really were focused on, we, we had to do this trade for someone who would move us into a chance to be a championship team. Um, We did have some opportunities with some younger players who we thought had a chance, just a chance, something around one and three at some point to be someone who you could pair with to well, and be a championship contender. But if we did that, we knew we were very likely writing off last year, most likely this year, uh, and even potentially the following year. Uh, We felt like it was important to give ourselves a chance last year, and we did, and it didn't work out, but we definitely had a chance last year. We felt like it was very important to have a chance this year, and we did. And so that, that was the big, of all the options, the one we did was the one that, you know, gave us a, material chance to win the championship in the in the in the one to three year time frame and but and i guess what i'm asking you though is on a decision making process sort of just it enumerate like what is the what is the rigor you go through to check against the cognitive biases Mm -hmm. to right because as you said we might do them even if we know about them so i would think that as an expert in this you, you must have said to yourself, well, I have to divorce myself from any connection to my past relationship with James and his, what I thought about the possibility of him taking Houston to a championship. And I, like, I'm just, you know, uh, I have to divorce myself of my emotional reaction to what I lived through with Ben Simmons. Like, right. I'm sure there was a series of, uh, so mm-hmm. how do you. Do you write shit down? Do you talk it out with someone on your? What's your yeah. process by to um to kind of like bleach out the cognitive biases because we could all mm-hmm. use to learn from that. So how do you do it? No, I appreciate. It. I'll 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 maybe go through all of them, but I'll address the yeah, do cognitive the the main one first. So what we do is we have a we sort of have like a Game of Thrones small council of uh, it's varied between six to eight here at the Sixers. It was about that same number in Houston. Uh, you know, with people with diverse backgrounds. And uh, generally what you do is, you know, by the time we had to make a big trade, we had an array of options, you know, which was probably of the realistic options. It was somewhere between five and seven. You independently have them rank. Uh, We use like an approach called Condorcet ranking, which, uh, which basically flattens strength of feeling across people. You can also, you, you basically want to, do those with a strength of feeling indicator. You look at both of those. Then we also have outside. What was the first one? Wait, strength of feeling. And what's the other one called? Oh, the other. uh, So the endorsement. Yeah. Yeah. So where I'm getting into voting theory, I'll take two seconds on it. I'm into it. Do it. Do it. No, it's fascinating. Do it. Because people have heard of rank choice voting. now. No, no, please do this. So what are the two things and what do they mean? Please. Yeah. 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 So, so there's an approach called Condorcet, which basically takes everyone's ranked order of the seven to 20 choices you might have and it all it does is do pairwise comparison this one's more than that one similar to rank choice but what matters is how you merge it together rank choice has a bunch of problems it's probably the best one for the public because it's simple people understand it condorsa does a much better job of if you're only looking at pairwise comparison that i think this player a is better than this player b but there's no factor for I like player A a lot better than B. How do you merge those together? And that's one type of merging that goes on. And then the other one is then we use what's called draft pick equivalent rankings. So there you basically say in a normal draft, one to 60, right? And you're valuing the players. You say, what is the indifferent draft pick in a normal draft you would need to, to swap the player for that draft pick? So that allows you to say, yeah, I think player A is worth the third best pick in the draft ever. That's very high. And player B is the 20th pick in the draft. So that's a strength of feeling. You sort of merge those two approaches. Yes. And that allows you to sort of triangulate. On top of that, that's among the small council. On top of that, we have outside consultants who aren't in our discussions ever, who right. just like who are actually part of these rankings. 
and that's sort of a lot that that basically again it's called it's basically risk hedging we're risk hedging uh if you look at the theory of decision making having multiple both models data approaches and human approaches all merged and all sort of rank well, voting right you'll get to a better decision and so that's basically how we go into any big decision small quick decisions like you know where we're going to you know eat or something go quicker but <laughs> these are for the but, big but and and you but you ultimately make the decision then right ultimately it's myself and conjunction with coach rivers and, and you know ownership right Josh, and so right. you know i think and and elton brand and so i'd say elton and i probably have the the biggest influence because we spend the most time uh with you know doc providing lots of feedback on how he thinks the different players will fit into what he's working with on the floor and then ownership is really more like you want good ownership who asks smart questions right so they pretty much are standoffish as long as when they ask a question, they're getting a good answer back. How do you get the fans in this kind of process like out of your head too? Because the fan judgment in this era is, uh, you know, I've had owners of teams tell me like GMs and coaches are fired by the, uh, by the fans, not by the owner. So how do you do it? How, what it do you do? It's a great question. First off, I think the most important thing is to realize that it is part of the process and not try to like delude yourself and that people <laughs> yes. can ignore it. To me, it's sort of like, it's sort of like the atmosphere, the oxygen you're dealing with. Right. And, you know, I've, done incredibly unpopular things over my career. Um, you know, you know, certain coaches I've hired, I know they like literally were panned on the front page and, and things like that. So look, you, you basically have to know when you're going against, you know, the, you have to then realize part of my job is to then sell it to the fans, right? You look at the end of the day, it's an entertainment product, just like, you know, billions isn't that much different from the 76ers, right? You don't get to have a score. I guess you have ratings or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, our job is to get people to tune in, watch, go to game. We, you know, if you could have fans at the billion set, I guess it would be even more analogous. But we're an entertainment product. We are. So, no, like, people like to act like you're ignoring the fan sentiment. But like, nobody does. So like let's you you actually have to acknowledge it, talk about it, make it part of the process. Okay, the fans aren't going to like this one. Let's figure out how we're going to sell this to the well, fans. Yes. Yeah. So is often people think that uh, those folks who are data driven just aren't emotional. But you're an emotional, passionate person. You care about music. You care about. Uh, movies you care about sports like you're engaged so was it a process for you to embrace this mode of decision making was it a conscious process or was it a natural process do you think for me it was natural and that i like i like for me winning i love it so much that it trumps everything like i i have to like feel like we're making the right decision for winning. And so that led myself and others who I've worked with here at the Sixers to be obsessive about how to make good decisions. Cause really my job is just about making a series of good decisions over and over on free agency draft and trade. Um, that that's, that's the job like mostly. Um, and so my obsession with winning, you know, sort of drives the emotion out of these decision making because I know it'll lower our our success rate of decision making, which decision making is very hard in these environments where, as I said, it's a mix of, of art and science. Very, very difficult. And throughout the industry, like if we all looked at Twitter on draft night this year, the fans pretty much knew that we'd be here with Chet Holmgren. The fans knew that this kid's body wasn't going to hold up, maybe not even through the summer. What happens, and Zion, like, look, Zion might be the greatest player. You know, it's possible Zion figures out his body and becomes the greatest player ever. Clearly, when he's on the court, is one of the greatest players ever. But fans learned a lesson from Greg Oden. 
Like fans generally really took that lesson and put it in our matrix. And mm-hmm. it's like, we look for that in matching, spotting it, right? We look for mm-hmm. that. And we saw that with Chet. Uh, I've been watching Chet since he was in high school, like mm-hmm. highlights of him, and I'm fascinated by him. But how does the league, mi- can you, what's the process by which like the league misses that? When the, you know, like the fans all knew it. You know? Right. No, I, I would say a couple of things. One is I can't specifically talk about them because they're on different teams. But I can. But you talk know what general. I mean. You can talk. I can general. talk generally about risk management. Obviously, Sixers famously selected Joel Embiid, who was out for the first two years and and also had issues. I would say there there are certain things the fans, to your point, get right. They understand they understand the risk you're taking on. I think you know there are times when. It's rational, like it was when the Sixers took to Alan Bede, even understanding he had had very serious medical issues uh, prior and potential in the future, where it's even with a really, really high medical fail rate, you should take it. And I'm, I guess what I'm disagreeing is I'm not sure the fans are always right. I think some of the examples you mentioned, I, I won't get into specifics, it could have still been rational for the teams to take those risks because to get to these top 10, 20 players, you might have to take these outsized risks uh, because your biggest downside is then you just pick high again. And that's not actually a horrible thing, if that makes no, this sense. No, br- this is super useful. Actually, Daryl, what you're saying without saying it about Chet in particular, I understand what you're saying is that, because this gets to a question I have about what rights fans should have about the product. Meaning you're saying in a, in a numerical look at it, if the thing is, okay, 10 out of 100 times the kid gets hurt before his first season in a way that has a dramatic effect, but in those 90 times that he doesn't, the value is so great potentially that it's worth it for us to assume that we're not ignoring the risk or we're not, it's not that we're not spotting that risk, it's that we think it is an acceptable risk because we're playing a longer, an infinite game of sorts. And so it's a longer, it's worth this, it's worth the dis- crushing disappointment to the fans, as opposed to taking Pablo, whose body's gonna be fine. It's worth it to, I mean, obviously Pablo could run, you know, something could happen to that kid tomorrow, but you know what I'm saying? Like, um, there's a sturdiness at, at play there that wasn't there with, that, 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 that uh, the team is aware that this was a possibility. They're just willing to assume the risk because of how they, calculate the upside is that correct yeah you said it perfectly and i think i would maybe make it even stronger which is that because we're in a competition of 30 we're only one wins i mean barring a mid-season tournament coming up which is one reason they're doing it by the way like we our job is actually figuring out which risk to buy because we we can't you can't just operate the team in a normal way and expect to ever win you have to choose you know, I'm going to take a player who's who, super talented, but might, you know, might be, might be an asshole. I'll just be honest, like might be bad with teammates. Right. Uh, or I could take a lot of injury risk, or I could take a guy who can't shoot at all, but is so good at everything else that if his shot hits and we can, we know at least a few all-stars who were like this, who developed their shot later and became one of the best yes. players in the league. You like you can't just like you're not no one's gonna just hand you like this finished superstar player. You have to buy some risk and you gotta choose which one is the best one to buy uh, if you're gonna win in a competition of 30. And sometimes this is where actually you do have to like not ignore the fans, but be good at explaining to the fans why you're taking the decisions you are. Well, okay, but but you are when you're making a decision along those lines, which you all people have made in your job you are also taking a risk that you're going to end up putting a product on the floor that the fans won't really be able to actively root for during the year and that's as a fan something that's i that's where i get so frustrated with the teams when i Mm -hmm. get frustrated with the teams i care about it it's like because your incentive is that your ability in the job you're in to uh be a success to be get rich for life is to win the fans want to win for sure but also want something to root for and it seems like you guys have to be willing to sacrifice the something to root for and that does create a disconnect sometimes right 
Yeah, and and so I think it's very difficult, right? So sometimes you're right. Often, in fact, I used to tell you know Sam Hinkie this. Yeah, uh, I felt like maybe, maybe again, like he was wonderful. Maybe he didn't take the larger context of the fact that it's an entertainment product. And if like if if you're just like up here, I'm optimizing just this one variable, probability of winning the championship. Uh, actually, if you really just did that, all these teams would be like the 24 teams a year would be rebuilding hard. Right. 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 That's which yeah. Would, right. Which would be really bad for the fan. Like it would just be, you know, so I, I, I get what you're saying. That it's a really, really tough equation to balance. I have found though, that fans, when you explain your strategy and approach, especially the 2k generation who just plays the GM mode, they don't even play the game anymore. Like they get that there's this whole strategy of how to build a winner. And frankly, if you don't get one of these, at least one transcendent player, or one guy who has a chance to make the Hall of Fame or almost for sure will make the Hall of Fame, you can't get the other pieces. Like, you know, famously teams I, I know you're familiar with, you know, they, they have a great market. They have a great history. They have a great everything. But these other players don't want to join until they feel like, they know they're joining another top player who give who gives them a chance to win the championship. So you have to get the first guy. And then a lot of the stuff like you're saying comes into play. But if you don't have the first guy who's like a unicorn like Joel Embiid, you know, it's very, very hard to build the rest of the team. I think about various Knicks fans' reactions to Carmelo, and I know Carmelo's been back in the league, so it's, you can't really talk about him, but it's a perfect example of something where like, even NBA players who, who respect and are in awe of, of his ability to score is sometimes in conflict with like what a bunch of like fans feel about the potential that that person brings to win. And I saw that with Jeremy Lin, right? Where you took the chance to bring Jeremy Lin in. What, can you talk, what was your thinking around that and how did you not buy into whatever the biases were? Because Jeremy's another example. He's kind of like the counter example to Mello in a way. Um, you know, and they were put in direct opposition in, in a certain way. But can you talk a little bit about what that decision was to bring Lin in, but then the decision to bring him in and then to bring James in, which essentially made it the there was no reason to bring Jeremy. You know what I mean? Like then once, once you were given the ball to James, that's not how Jeremy could function. So can you talk about that a little bit about, yeah, a, I think it's illuminating for decision-making, you know, that was one of the most, you know, and it, it really, you know, fits with everything else we've talked about. That was the most, one of the most fun times when I was at the Rockets, Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady had uh, ended their careers. We had been winning, 41 to 50 games. Um, but that does you no good if you're trying to win the championship. Um, so we were basically doing this thing. We were buying risk wherever we could get it. If you look at our draft picks in that period, there yeah. are players who played like three games in the NBA because they had talent but fell to later in the draft because people thought they had no chance to make it, and they really did have no chance to make it. So so but we took those risks and Jeremy was one more. Look, we we knew we knew Jeremy had some chance to be a top 20 player in the NBA. Yes. We didn't think it was actually a super high chance, but on the downside he was going to still be very good. Uh to your point, there are factors like entertainment and look, he's a great guy, still a friend to this day. Love him. Um Yeah, I mean, I mean there's I was, no bigger Jeremy Lin fan than me. My I have a whole theory that if the league would have just looked at him and not seen the fact that he was an Asian man. He would have had a very different career and would have been a top 20 player. But I don't think that even in talking to NBA players, they just couldn't get over it. I don't think in some way the differences. Like I think there was a buy on uh, uh, there were subliminal biases, I believe at play. But, you know, so 100 percent. And Michael's book, we, you know, he talks about that in a good in a, just like just like you did. Uh, you know, look, Jeremy also got hurt in a very significant way. So we really don't know what Jeremy would have been. But, you know, frankly, Jeremy, if if we hadn't and we didn't think the James Harden trade was coming, we were hoping for some trade like that. We've been building up 
in, you know, draft picks and whatever to do that trade. But we didn't know when it would come. And it came at the worst time ever for Jeremy Lynn. Like basically yes. Jeremy was going to be our on ball guy with a spread floor. And we all know he thrives in that environment did in New York and did in places, you know, after the Houston Rockets, we just basically went from Jeremy Lynn, who's very, very good on ball player to one of the best in NBA history. And it was, and it was very hard for everyone, including him mentally. Like we were still trying to feature him when James was off the floor but it, you know, given given the meteoric rise and probably more chances that he should have gotten somewhere, um, we don't know. He could have he could have been he could have been more magical, and then he got hurt, and then it was like well, it's fascinating. So, like, you had to. So, this is an example of that kind of decision making, which is even though you had made this big move. Now, I know it wasn't that expensive, fifteen million dollars or whatever it was, but you still made this move to Jeremy Lin. And then you had to shift because you had to know, again, because the fans knew. I mean, I remember being so sad when you guys got hardened. You know, I was rooting. As a Knicks fan, I have to pick another team to root for every year. So, uh, and I usually, it'll be someone I'm, it'll be somebody that I'm friends, you know. Luckily, because I'm old now and doing this, I have friends all around. So I just pick a team, you know, so your team was my team that year. And um, I was sad though, because it was like, oh, I'm never gonna get to see whether this experiment could have worked. But you had to, as the guy who did it, just kind of write off the fact that you'd brought Jeremy in when you got the opportunity to grab James, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like to your point, like at that point, it's a sunk decision. Like it's- That's what I'm saying. You had to just say, okay, even though I was invested in that, I have to immediately sort of take, I have to not be invested in that at all now and just make the next decision. Yeah, and then the and then the personal side of the business, which you know, um, people maybe by perception think I'm not good at, but I'm I, anyone who knows me knows I'm fairly good at it. You know, it's like okay, how do you put your arm around Jeremy and explain to him, hey, we're still going to get you these opportunities, we're still going to do this, we're still going to do that. Here's how to make it all work. And actually, they they actually work together on the floor much better than even we expected. Um, and then we to pair uh we were trying to to pair james with um with uh chris uh chris bosh who i can't talk about. i always have to think in my head is the guy in the league or not so right. I, of course chris has been out for a bit so we were trying to pair him with chris again buying risk to get chris i had to trade jeremy before we knew he had chris we thought our odds were in the 80 90 range obviously we know now they were in the much lower odds than that and we had to make this trade, which we would have never made, uh, just on the chance we get Chris Bosch because we thought he would be an amazing fit with James, which I, to this day I still think he would have been. Yes, so. and Chris is uh, very close with my my sons. I'm a big I'm aware of all this and you know care about it. What a great guy he is! Enormously smart to like you a know, brilliant guy and an incredible yeah. incredible talent. And you know the thing happened in in his in his life. Um, this has been fascinating. We're basically out of time. I didn't get to do the whole, your biography because I, I that's in Michael Lewis's. People can learn about how Daryl found his way and it's very inspiring and uh, an incredible story. I would say as a last thing, Daryl, could you just talk us through, like what is it just a, a typical day's schedule for you? Meaning like, cause part of it, you have to keep your mind sharp and you're like, you gotta stay sharp. So like what, what is it? Just walk me through a typical, a typical day from even like what you have for breakfast or how, do you meditate or do you journal? <laughs> like what's your typical sort of, how do you get going in the, in the day? Sure. I mean, I, I appreciate you asking that. I, I actually don't usually address it, but for you, I will. I, I always feel like no one should care, but whatever. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Uh, I would say, look, the one thing I love about my job is my days are very not typical. That really fits yes. me. I'm, I'm, I'm someone who likes to like, take on the new so i i generally like at the start of a day really it's actually on sunday night i'll map out the three to five things that i feel like if we don't accomplish this week we're not advancing the ball um and then in the morning i'll review the things like because you know like especially in your job brian and mine a lot of as uh stephen covey would say a lot of sand will get dropped in like just a lot of little stuff can keep you from your big goals so you have to keep those in mind so i'll review those I get Starbucks. I'm Starbucks addicted. That's sad. It's a sad part of my life. It's sad. Sad, yeah, it's sad, sad part of my life. Um, which, which I know because you had the the coffee. You know, you probably had better coffee than I did with Starbucks. But anyway, um, 
And and then, you know, then it's just the day. Today we had players in playing, so it's important that I go down and talk to the players. And How do you get alone? I guess this is what I want to know. I know that I have to do it. Now, I'm a writer, but still, I have to find a couple slots, slots in the day where I'm disconnected from incoming, from input. I mean, you know, Mark McCormick used to, in your business, used to talk about, like, don't take incoming calls. But I have to, like, have a parts of my day where I either meditate or journal so that I'm I'm able to codify what the fuck I'm worried about or thinking about or targeting. So do you slot in solo time like that for yourself? I I so I, it's really interesting. I'm obsessive about time and it can like unless I feel like it's tied to the mission like a long term like I'm very good about I don't have an admin. That's like a big thing for me. Like, which I know seems crazy and counterintuitive. <laughs> so, but I'm a digital guy. So I'm like very good about using digital tools. So I, I basically never have a conversation or spend time on something that I don't think is super important. Now, again, look, someone drops in or whatever. Yeah, of the, course, like re- of course. Reality hits. hits so you're saying that most of the day is free for you to go and be, by, and be with your head. Yeah. Cause I'll just be like, like if I like we have some roster decisions we have to make coming up they're not going to be made for six weeks but if if we're not right now working on potential trades to clean up those roster decisions or you know watching them you know every day here to get to make the best possible decision talking to coaches what they're seeing like if I'm not doing that I'm not going to make a good decision later so I spend a lot of time on that um i really really don't i mean i'm bad with the email uh i yeah i i just like yeah like <laughs> if it's really important they'll find me somehow um and yeah I, I don't think i'm describing it well but i i really am counterintuitively obsessed with with making sure like one reason I don't have an admin is because often they'll insert stuff on your calendar that you don't want. Yes. <laughs> so it's just like, I feel like I'm the only one who knows how to manage. So I'm really obsessive with time management. That's been for a long time. Yeah. So oh, that maybe that'll be your Stephen Covey kind of book. And by the way, you mentioned it. Uh, I'll just tell listeners, I've never mentioned this book, but Seven Habits uh, of Highly Effective People. Is that what it's called? Correct. Uh, yes. Yeah. By Stephen Covey. Yes, man, that's a useful book. I would just say it's a useful fucking book. That book, right? I would say, look, I I was sort of a, a fuck up till I was about twenty one and a half years old, and you know, I knew my wife at the time, and um, I just I read it at the right time. Look, it's not this. It's not a groundbreaking book. It's actually, he openly stole from Ben Franklin and all these other great thinkers over the years, but he synthesized it. And it, it, it was something, it was an important book to me and his grandson's on the Eagles, if you can believe it. So I was That's at the amazing. Eagles practice. I saw Covey. I'm like, there's no way, but then it was a really small. Did you talk to him? Did you talk no, to him? No, I did. I didn't know till later. I didn't find out till later. So one of my friends who knew Steven, I told him and he was tickled that, you know, his grandson made the NFL, which is amazing. So yeah, look, there's a lot of great self-help books. I wouldn't say this one is necessarily better than anyone else, but it, it meant a lot to me and it's a lot on time management. It's a big part of the book. So yeah, I would just say, if you've never read it, I agree with you. Every, everything you said about it. I still think as a foundational piece, it's worth reading. It's a good foundational piece. Uh, everybody, Daryl is on social media. You can find him on Twitter. Um, are you, I forget, are you on Insta? You're on Instagram too, right? Instagram, Daryl Morey, yep. Yeah, Moore he's on, on these things. Yeah, yeah. He says I actually interact with the there. fans on Twitter. Instagram, right, I'm not as good at, but, but yeah. All right, this is the very last thing. I realize I can't let you out. I'm not going to ask you about China directly, but I am going to say this to you. How do you weigh now your moral conscience with your professional duties? Is it something you think about a lot? Uh, and how do you how do you weigh that stuff in the shadow of of everything? Lastly, um, uh, look, it actually really fits with the last thing with with Covey, which is like you do have to decide in your life, like what are your foundational principles? What are the ones that you think are super duper important? And, uh, you know, it's you know, and when when those come up, I don't compromise. So I think that's, you know, and like you better choose the right ones because sometimes you're going to have to you know defend them through a lot of uh, 
difficult times. So, um, yeah, so, so I yeah, thought that so, was, but if I, hadn't read, if I hadn't really thought through that carefully, like a lot of things in my past would have gone differently. So, uh, I thought that was a very heroic thing. And, uh, you know, at the time I, I definitely called you and told you that. And, uh, I, 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 I believe it. I, I thought it was, uh, essential. And I think the ripples of what you said and did in a positive way are still, out there in the in the culture and it was it was awesome and, and you were right daryl Morey, thank you so much for being here the sixers are absolutely one of the teams that i'm rooting for i was as soon say, as the are Knicks... we your team this year are we your team this yes year? well i've got a lot of connectivity with you guys now and and uh i spoke to the sixers uh to the back office a couple of years ago right before you got there I love the team, you know. I, well, you I love the be, players. You can't be Team Simmons and Team Maury. You're gonna probably have to choose between Celtics and 76ers. That's gonna. No, be I would a, never go with the. Se- no, I, as a Knicks, as a lifelong Knicks fan, you just cannot in any way, shape, uh, or form I ever be a Celtics that. fan. So I can be a Sixers fan, and uh, no, for me, it's always whatever Mark. Cu- it's always either Cuban's team, Lazarus' team, or your team now, basically. So, uh, but I'm rooting Some for the good Sixers. choices. Some good choices. Thanks, Daryl. Have a good day. Appreciate it, Brian. Thanks. Thanks, Brian.